0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about some new stats can numbers that not only are interesting, but that also some say are a little bit concerning. Are they concerning? Or is too much being made of the spread between young and old in this country? We'll talk about that one. We're also going to talk about the Jays who start their playoff series. Are you interested in the Jays this year? We're hearing mixed reviews on that. Five years ago, you would have been are you now? Well, we'll talk about that one. And we are going to dive down into the deepest brain twisting thing, time travel. We're going to talk to a physicist from Australia who says time travel theoretically is really possible. He will explain. Stick around.
1: Today on the Scott Radley Show on
0: 900 CHML. A uh, release came out today from Statistics Canada. These things come out now and again, sometimes interesting, sometimes less so. But today I thought was really interesting, and I'll tell you why. First of all, this release highlighted what is probably a bit of a momentous moment in Canadian history. We have now passed the 38 million mark in our population. So when you're talking to someone now and you're talking about Canada, population 38 million seems like it was still 25, not that long ago, but anyway, 38 million is where we're at now. Uh, I suppose that's good. I don't really know that there's a good number or a bad number, but it's up. So go with that as you will. But the real takeaway to me from these numbers that came out today from StatsCan were a little concerning more than exciting because the gap between the number of seniors and the number of children is growing with seniors in the lead. Many more seniors now in this country than children. 18% of the population is now over 65 years old. Children are less than 16% of the population. And again, those arrows are pointing in different directions. They are expanding each time we get these numbers. Um, This is the kind of thing that generally makes economists and demographers and other experts shudder a little bit. Why? Well, let me bring on someone who uh, who qualifies for that. His name is Mikhail Skudarud. He's an economics professor at the University of Waterloo. And we know extra brilliant, even though he is a doctor, because two of his degrees are from McMaster University. So, Dr. Skudarud, we know you come with great, great background. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Um, it would seem... I think logical and somewhat obvious that a healthy society, a healthy country, would have more births than deaths, and probably more youth than age. Am I wrong?
2: Um, it depends, I guess, how you measure the health of the society. I'm not so sure that's that's true. Uh, okay, and I'm not so sure either that that the population. I mean, you sort of alluded to at the beginning that the population is a yardstick for anything really that meaningful. I mean, you think of countries that are much bigger than Canada, India, and Brazil, for example, and they have a much bigger population, much bigger economy, but I'm not sure that's what we're striving for. And then you have other countries like Switzerland or Norway that have much many fewer people and, and a much smaller economy, and they're much better off than we are. So I'm not sure that those are really that meaningful measures.
0: No, I I think with the 38 million, I I was more looking at it just as one of those numbers that you put as a yardstick along the way, or as a marker on the highway to say, oh, we're at 38 million now. That's, that's interesting. It's more the other though. It's more the, the growing distance between the number of young and number of old. Um, and again, I, you know, reading and and looking at a number of people today, there seems to be concern about this Are, Are is, should there be, or is there no concern about this? So I
2: guess I, you're right. I hear this a lot. Where I hear it a lot is that my specialty is in, on immigration, economics of immigration. And so I do hear this concern a lot because the decline we're seeing in the population growth, which was a part of this release today, is that we've, we've seen in recent months um, quite a significant drop in population growth. And most of that is because of declines in the number of new immigrants entering Canada. And, and so people – I hear this story all the time that Canada needs more immigrants and we need, you know, to keep our economy growing and our population growing. We need more people. We need more births. To be quite honest with you, Scott, I don't get it. I really don't get it. I I don't understand what the, the, the concern is.
0: Well, I would think, and, and again, the, the position that, I, that I've read today and that I've seen a number of people take is that with the gap between the older people, they are theoretically, presumably going to need more medical care. Um, their health care costs are going to go up. And if you have more of them and fewer people working, especially with perilous jobs, it becomes more difficult to find the money for the social programs that we need
2: right but there's been what we call a demographic dividend for many many years because I mean, we know why we know why there's such a large proportion of the population that are in that older age group. And that's because it was a big baby boom after the Second World War. For sure, if we reap the benefits of that for many generations. We had sort of the opposite issue, before, you know, th- through the the 60s and 70s and 80s, that a large proportion of the population were working age, and a relatively small proportion were y- young people or older people that needed medical care. Now we're just sort of paying for that dividend now. Say well, that's a big problem. We, we have to solve that problem. Well, I don't. I don't know how you do that. I mean, you, you you can't. You know, if we increase the number of people being born now, then that just adds another problem in the future. We're going to have the same demographic bulb in, bulge in bulges in the future. That we're dealing with the same problem again in the future. So the problem is that there was this bulge in the population. I think going back, you wouldn't say, "Well, we shouldn't have done that. We should have restricted births after the Second World War." <laughs> yeah.
0: you
3: know? we're not going to say that.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm not. I, don't, I guess I don't really see it as a problem. Um, there, there, there is a cost, you're right, for sure, to have a large proportion of the population that are older. But, um, but po- there are things that are happening that, that we deal with. And one of the most important is, of course, that older people are healthier and they're working longer than they ever have before. Um, so they're less dependent on on the public purse, if you like than they've ever been before. So I think there's ways we can adjust. I don't think, I guess the point I'm trying to make is I don't look at those numbers and, and shudder or worry about them. I think we've I've, we've known for decades this is gonna happen, that those baby boomers are gonna age and, and,
1: and, and become dependent. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We're talking with Dr. Mikhail Skudarud from the University of Waterloo, economics professor. Um, you mentioned uh, just before the break that the age of people is going up. We are living longer. I was shocked in this. Here's another number that came out today, which I was I found I don't know why I found this so shocking, but there are 11,500 centarians in Canada. People have lived to be a 100. I, I don't know why 100 seems to be that number that you only knew or heard of five people in your lifetime or something now 11,500. but it does speak to what you said. We do have a lot of people living an awfully lot longer, requiring an awful lot more money
2: yeah so i i guess uh, on that i i, I think that the, the reason why there are more people that are over the age of, of 100 is that even if the probability of living to be over 100 stays the same and hasn't increased over the time because the population is rising you're going to get more people in true. that group true so it, i it, the a, there's i mean you're right. Life expectancy in Canada is constantly increasing, but the the kind of low hanging fruit, the medical advances that have really increased our life expectancy, have pretty much, for the most part, they've been grabbed already. So right now, I mean, the big think about medicine, right? The big Innovations where you, you increase life expectancy is, is in cancer treatment in particular. Mm. Um, and, and so, those treatments, the kind of the relatively straightforward ones that, that have been really successful, like treating prostate cancer, um, those, those have happened. So, you're, you're, most of that change you're seeing there is, is I don't think, um, life expectancy. Because if you look over the past 10, 20, 30 years, it's still hovering like 82 for men and a little bit more for women. That, that hasn't changed very much.
0: You know, you just raised something that I have never contemplated before, and it probably is awkward to even ask this, but if we ever found a cure for cancer, would we have the the would we have some problems with that because of the number of people who would then even then live longer and longer?
2: Possibly that wouldn't be good for the economy. It really has to do, I guess, Scott, with, with how productive people can still be. Sure. I mean, if, if it means that you can continue to be productive because you, you haven't had these bouts with cancer. I mean... Actually, this is kind of personal. I went through a bout with cancer. I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma two years ago, and I'm in my mid-40s. And um, I think the new—I—I I, I thought I wasn't going to get through it. And so you sort of—I think the new reality is, I as I talked to a lot of people that were cancer survivors, is that increasingly, you know, we're going to be a generation of people that have multiple bouts of cancers because the treatment sure. is just so much better. And so as long as the, that treatment doesn't knock you out, that you can't continue working, then I think it might be okay if we live longer, just as long as we can keep being productive. And that's where the, what the other piece that's interesting there is that the labor market is that the kinds of jobs we do are changing so much. So we're, we do much – manual jobs are much less a part of our economy, and desk jobs are much more of a part. Mm-hmm. Sitting at your desk and looking at a computer, I can do that until I'm much older, right? And so for sure. I think, for sure. You know, we're gonna be for the most important thing I think that will, I can be pretty sure will be happening, is that young people like my kids who are teenagers now, I'm pretty sure they're gonna be working a lot longer than my parents were or even that I will be.
0: Yeah, and, and if you are contributing as opposed to just taking, that's yep. that's a benefit.
2: Absolutely. That's absolutely a benefit. I mean the whole labor market and the types of jobs we do are constantly evolving, right? And I think this movement away from manufacturing and towards more kind of high skill jobs um, that don't demand the kind of manual dexterity skills aren't as hard on your body, and you can keep doing these kinds of jobs for a long time. And I think that's very good for the economy. The most important thing economists worry about is not population or, or uh, birth rates or even number of immigrants. It's about the productivity of the economy, Mm. how much each person is producing. And that's where immigration actually can have a big impact or education, improving the education system for young people. It's those kinds of investments that if you if you bring in, you know, when I talk about immigration, the objective is not to maximize the number of immigrants. It's to bring in the right highly productive immigrants. Um, That's why we have what's called a skilled immigration policy, a point system that we bring highly skilled immigrants. That's how you raise productivity and living standards.
0: And, And, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up. I wanted to ask you about this. We only have a minute or so left here, but that's an area that makes a ton of sense to people. And yet it also makes people a little nervous, I think at times to talk about that, cause it sounds like we're being elitist or we're telling the, the refugees who are trying to escape from a horrible situation, we don't really want you. We want the person who is productive and brings in money. It, it is a balancing act to have to do that though. And I don't think we wanna go just on the one extreme or just on the other, do we?
2: So Scott, you just like walked right into the area of my research. And I, I would love to be invited back and talk to you about this again, cause I could go on forever about this, but you're exactly right. I think in Canada, we don't have an open and honest conversation about immigration. Most Canadians don't recognize that, in fact, we don't have one immigration system in this country. We have three immigration systems. And they all have very distinct objectives. And what's happened over time, so the the three are basically humanitarian, which is our refugee groups, family reunification, so that's bringing in, you know, family members, and then economic class. And what's happening over time is that we're increasing immigration and all of it is going towards the economic class because that's the way the government is selling immigration to Canadians is that you guys are going to benefit from these immigrants coming in, which just there is no real evidence of that. So my argument is always that there are really good arguments and reasons Or immigration, I think the humanitarian considerations you talked about are hugely important. If you look at what happens to the well-being of those immigrants themselves when they come to Canada, they're way better off. And I think we need to get back to that conversation around immigration. Immigration is not about making us better. It's about being a good international citizen, and it's about making immigrants better.
0: We have to run, sadly, but I am jotting your phone number down and we are going to have you back and we are going to talk about this because we do need a lot more time to talk about this. I really do want to do that, but I really thank you today for uh, for taking the time. Dr. Mikhail Skudarud from the University of Waterloo, thanks for the time.
1: Thanks, Scott. appreciate that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Blue Jays opening their playoff series today. They are currently playing against Tampa Bay. Let me bring in Rick Zamprin. Sports director for 900 CHML. That's right here. He is the guy from right here, coming on right here. Rick, how are you?
3: Here I am. I'm good. How are you?
0: I am good. You know, that song that Ben just played coming in, Who Are You?, Uh, a number of reasons for that song. One of them is to open every single branch of the CSI franchise. Uh, The Mm -hmm. other is to ask a question. Could you watch the Blue Jays this year if you tuned in right now and comfortably say you could name... 50% of the players on the team by just by visually looking at them saying, I know who that guy is.
3: Uh, I think I could for sure. The, the average person or the non-sports fan, certainly not the fair weather baseball fan. Who's maybe not necessarily a blue Jay fan. Probably not. I don't think that
0: there is a person in the, maybe across Canada. And that's a little exaggerated, but uh, back in 2015, you would have had a very hard time finding someone in this country that could not see a picture of Jose Bautista and not known who he was. And Edwin Encarnacion and Marcus Stroman and go down the list. I've talked about this on the show before. I just don't get the sense this year for whatever reason, even though the Jays are in the playoffs, that there is nearly the same buzz around them right now. I heard literally, and I know I'm working from home, but I've been talking to people online and talking to people by text. I've heard nobody saying, hey, are you watching the game today? Nobody. It's never even came up.
3: You're probably right in terms of the recognition factor because there aren't a lot of long-tenured Blue Jays players on this team. Perhaps the most recognizable has only been there a couple of years, and that's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. But if you were to ask the average Canadian, uh, to, you know, to point out Guerrero Jr. in a lineup, they might be able to do so. I, I would say maybe half would be able to do so. and That might be a little bit of a stretch. But yeah, the buzz around, I think the baseball playoffs in general has been a little muted, uh, maybe to the same, uh, same extent as the NHL playoffs certainly would have got to both the conference finals and certainly the Stanley Cup final. Um, you know, it's, it's just it, during a different time of the year, at least for the NHL, that's for sure. But even with baseball, I mean, the season would still kind of be on. It, 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 this would be the last kind of days of the regular season, and then they would launch in the playoffs. Um, and, it, and in saying that, it's funny because there are more teams involved in the playoffs. Toronto is in the playoffs. But yeah, I, I get the same sense at you. I mean, I've, I've talked with friends and family members about the Jays, but the buzz just seems to be a little, have a little bit of a din to it.
0: 2015, 2016, you could not have a conversation this time of year with anybody and the Blue Jays would not come up in that conversation. I, I mean, it was even people who were marginal sports fans at best, chances are had decided to jump on board the bandwagon. And again, you know, maybe they beat Tampa and win this first series and get rolling. Maybe that changes. Um, First of all, they never beat Tampa, especially (laughs) in Tampa. So I'm not holding out great hope, but I, I, as I say, it's to me, it's very weird. It's very weird that we have a team from this area showing success. I mean, the Esther Raptors, but the Leafs have been out forever and the Argos didn't play and TFC. I don't even know where they're playing these days. Um, Ticats didn't play. It's very odd to me that there's just so little excitement about this.
3: How much do you put it on the pandemic and just people thinking about other things? Because back in 2015-16, you know, we had a run-up of 162 games and, you know, the acquisitions of David Price and Troy Tulowitsky and, you know, Bautista and Encarnacion, Encarnacion Donaldson being there for a few seasons, having MVP caliber seasons, you know, having a good pitching staff, a great bullpen I mean, there was so much to talk about. With this year's team, it just seems to be, you know, they, they, they had to play in Buffalo, and they got a lot of young players, but that's pretty much it. There, there, there isn't a lot of talk about this team because they haven't really done anything yet other than playing in, play in another city and, and play a shortened season, and now they find themselves in the playoffs.
0: All right. So let me ask you this and I'm, we're going to cover some territory for those who don't know you and I and Bubba O'Neill from CHCH and Steve Milton from the spec. We do a little thing on YouTube a few times a week called home games, Hamilton. People can go look online for YouTube. They can find our conversations there. So we talked about this. We started on this one. The manager of the Blue Jays, Tony Montana. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nobody can remember his name. Um, Charlie Montoyo. Now, whether he made the call on this one or whether it was handed down to him, the Blue Jays decided not to start their ace in the first game today of the playoffs, which flies completely in the face of convention. If you have an ace, you pitch him as many times as you can. They are not doing that. Is Charlie Montoyo and are the Blue Jays brass brilliant strategists who are working the fringes of the game and finding soft spots, or are they overthinking the whole thing?
3: I'd vote for the latter, but I guess we're about to find out over the next three days because they're playing back to back to back. Um, you know, even in, in in today's game, you know, I wrote my blog the other day on 900chml.com that Hun Jin Ryu should have gotten the start because he was their best pitcher through and through from the start to you know the end of the regular season. Played against Tampa Bay or pitched against Tampa Bay very well. You go with your number one guy for the particular reason that the overwhelming number of teams that win game one or the overwhelming percentage of those teams that win game one, go on to win that series and move on. And the name of the game, yes, is to win two games, as Charlie Montoyo said over the weekend. But if you don't win game one, the average or the, 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 the number of teams that win two in a row to take that best of three is absolutely minuscule. It's in the single percent uh, number. Um, I, I just don't know. I, I don't like how they approach this series. I understand, yeah, you got to win two games. But if you lose the first one, you're in a hole. You're the pressure's on. You've you've uh, you know mounted some pressure on you. Uh, it's it, you know you don't want to climb that hill. You want to be at
1: the top of the hill with that one game lead in your back pocket. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Rick, just before the break, we were talking about Charlie Montoyo and the Blue Jays brain touched and doing things in an unorthodox fashion. So you mentioned Jung Ryu not pitching the opener, even though he is there clearly their ace, and that would be the typical thing to do. So today they start Matt Shoemaker, who has had success against Tampa, and you're thinking, okay, well, you know what? He's had success against Tampa. He's going to go for a while. Rolls through three innings, only two hits given up, and they yank him and put in, Robbie Ray because, well, why wouldn't you? And now it looks like Robbie Ray is going to come out after three innings and they're going to put in someone else because, well, because why? (laughs) I guess if it's working, I don't know, but it it like, clearly the Blue Jays brain trust is trying to reinvent baseball. And I suppose good on them, they're geniuses if it works and they're morons if it doesn't.
3: Yeah, it's quite obvious that the Jays had a plan in terms of how they were going to use Shoemaker, but... But I say that word because when he's rolling, um, you know, you, you keep him in there. I know that <clears throat> he had, he, he pitched, what, like three innings over the last month because of a lat issue. Um, but at the end of the day, when your pitcher is going and he's on uh, and he's feeling good, I'm sure he was feeling great after three innings, you know, only throwing 30 some odd pitches. I know the plan is the plan, but sometimes as a manager, uh, you just got to say, hey, listen, uh, i got to go with the hot hand here. There was no guarantee, and it turns out in the fourth inning there was no guarantee because the Rays ended up scoring a run, um, that Robbie Ray was going to come in and be just as effective or that he was going to come in and be even better. Uh, the fact of the matter is the Rays lead 1-0 because Charlie Montoyo stuck with the plan. Who knows? It could be 5-0 if Shoemaker came out for the fourth and and, and who knows, the fifth inning but the fact of the matter is Shoemaker was on fire and I thought they should have just kept going with them.
0: Well, and as I said a moment ago, I mean, what's going to happen here is if the Jays somehow win this series and you've done all these wacky pitching stuff where you don't start your ace and you're pulling guys in and out and, and keeping in mind the risk here for the Jays is because there are no days off because of the compressed schedule and the extra playoffs and everything There's no rest time between games. So the three guys, assuming you only use three, who you're pitching today, probably not available for the rest of this series. So if it happens that Ryu gets in trouble tomorrow, you've already taken out a lot of your long arms out of the bullpen that, you know, so you better hope it's right. But if, if it turns out, if they win, boy, the Blue Jays guys can walk around and with their chest puffed out saying, see, we have reinvented how the game is done. But if they end up losing this, they got some questions to answer.
3: Yeah, that, you know what? That's a big if, especially tomorrow. I know Ryu, and we've been singing his praises over the last couple of minutes. But what if he gets just torched in the first couple of innings and it's seven nothing? Does he have to wear it for the next five innings because they don't want to burn through more members of their pen because they're going to need him in Game Three? Should they come out on top in this ball game? I mean, it's a strategy to me that just is kind of backwards because you're you're just banking on too many things happening bank on the guys that have gotten you there and, you know, starting your ace in game one. That's what Tampa is doing. That's what every other baseball club is doing here in the majors. So if it works today, some other teams might look at that and say, "Hmm, maybe we'll do that for the next round, or maybe we'll do that next year if they keep this playoff format. I'm not sure it's that easy because as we saw the last year and a half or so, you know, baseball managers adopted this opener concept in terms of, you know, starting one of their uh, relievers to start the game, and which was a
0: Tampa Bay first. thing where Montoyo was yeah. the bench boss. So this is where he's come from. This this background, this system of doing these things.
3: Yeah, and you know, it caught fire a little bit, but it's kind of petered out because I think most managers realize: listen, we're just burning through a reliever that we can use later on in the game that might save us. Uh, or, or get us out of a jam because, you know, we're up by one and we need, you know, a couple of outs in the seventh or eighth or ninth innings. And we can't now use this pitcher because we burned them in inning number one. So, you know, the, uh, whether this is the renaissance of baseball, I I kind of doubt it. Uh, it's interesting, if nothing else.
0: Well, and as I say, we were talking on the YouTube podcast on, uh, on Home Games Hamilton. I mean, one of the questions was, does a modern manager in the modern baseball era when everything is done by analytics and everything is based on numbers and the shifts are put on and who bats and who pitches. And is this, is this the attempt to make relevant again, the manager to, to do things like this and try this and say, look, Charlie Montoyo isn't just a pretty face sitting on the bench wearing a uniform. Look at what he came up with. I mean, I don't think that's why they're doing it. Um, But I I, I really, I have the opinion, I have the belief that modern managers don't do a whole heck of a lot. They rely on numbers, and this is one of those things that you're going to try and do. And again, it's either going to make him a legend, potentially, or it's going to make him look like a fool.
3: Yeah, I, I think this game plan for the first three games of this series with, you know, Shoemaker and Ray today and banking on Ryu going, you know, seven or eight innings tomorrow, I think it's all based on analytics. Um, you know, you have, a, I think what they, they like to think of themselves as a progressive front office. Uh, some of the moves have worked out that they've made. Some have not, um, you know, at the end of the day, if it works great. Yeah. The, the plan is, you know, the plan is the plan and they'll probably utilize it for, you know, other series to come. Um, uh, I, I'm more of a purist or a traditionalist. You go with the guys that brought you there and the, the best of the best to start games or be in your lineup and you win and lose with those guys.
0: That's why we should have had you on at the beginning of the show, because you bring the best on right off the bat. <laughs> you, should, you should have been the starter today, but you know what? We had a good starter. So you know what? You're, you're in in solid relief and we appreciate it.
1: Appreciate it. Glad to help.
3: <laughs>
0: Rick Sanfran from <laughs> 900 CHML.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: This is fascinating to me, even though, as I say, I'm a little fearful knowing how good I am at math he says with his tongue planted firmly in his cheek. But how many times in let's just choose movie history, how many times in the movies has a director has a film explored the idea of time travel? You can probably think of a whole bunch of them. I mean, back to the future is obviously one of the biggest and best known, but there are others of varying quality. Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Some of you will be big fans of that one. Others. It was always a movie thing, though, or a TV thing, though, because clearly it was a fictional, ludicrous construct, right? The idea of getting into a telephone booth or something and just going, and you're in a different time. Clearly, that's impossible. Well, maybe not. There are some physicists now in Australia who say, as I understand it, and we'll find out in just a second, that they... They would say that time travel is theoretically possible. Now, there is a giant butt that comes along with this. We'll get to that in a second. But to help us understand this, let me bring in one of those physicists, Fabio Costa. Dr. Fabio Costa is a physicist from the University of Queensland in Australia who supervised this research. He joins us now. Dr. Costa, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it.
4: Yeah, thank you for having me
0: uh by the way we are in a sense already proving time travel is possible because it is already 9 30 a.m tomorrow where you are so clearly we've traveled across time already so we don't even have to talk anymore we've already proved that it's possible
4: yeah that's right and uh, well another way we prove it every day we uh, wake up uh, in the morning and then we wait and we time travel to the evening so yes that's, <laughs> that's true travel
0: uh, this is one of those topics that I think a lot of people have twisted their brains in knots, and I'm not talking about even people who are as brilliant as you are with PhDs and who study physics. I mean, just average people have made themselves go a little bit crazy trying to figure this out and decide if it's possible. How long have you been contemplating this idea?
4: Well, as a, as an idea as such, uh, certainly is, uh, is fascinating, and I've been uh, interested in it uh, since early age. As a a research topic, uh, um, I've been studying it for a few years. So my main area of research is quantum foundations uh, and the notion of causality. So um, since around seven years, I've been studying uh, this field, uh, how uh, causal structure interacts with quantum mechanics. And uh, only starting from three, four years ago, I started to study more specifically the possibilities of uh, time travel, not necessarily related to quantum physics.
0: I I don't mean for this question to sound um, sarcastic or anything, but do a lot of people in the physics world study it, or would it be considered kind of a frivolous thing because of how many movies and everything else have been made about it? Is this something that is taken very, very seriously in the physics world?
4: Well, it's surprisingly more people than one will uh, suspect. So, uh, for example, last year, Nobel Prize, Kip Thorne, uh, is one of the people that studied uh, time travel uh, most seriously. Is uh, one of the pioneers of the field, and uh, there are a bit of waves. So there was uh, quite some work uh, at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, and then uh, it's a topic that, uh, of course, uh, is not the the most studied. It's always a bit uh, on the side, a bit fringe, but definitely there is a constant interest. Uh, and uh, and um, the interesting is not. Uh, Uh, These are uh, pure speculation, but there are uh, theories of nature that we know work, like the uh, general theory of relativity that describes gravity, which actually predict uh, scenarios that suggest time travel might be possible. So uh, studying time travel is not just something frivolous, but it's something that uh, we need to do to to better understand uh, uh, those theories at the foundations of, uh, of physics.
0: Okay. So I'm a little fearful of this. Uh, again, you, you are the math expert. I am far from a math expert, but we're going to do our best here. Uh, despite my fear of this, because I'm guessing this is a very complicated thing to try to explain, but let's give it a try anyway. In, in very, in as simple terms as you can possibly explain it, how could time travel be possible?
4: Well, there are, uh, uh, different, uh, ideas and possibilities. As I said, uh, the most uh, likely, so to speak, at the moment, come from uh, uh, general relativity. Uh, so general relativity tells that space-time is not uh, um, a fixed background on which events unfold, but it's uh, something dynamical and, uh, and also something that can be curved and bent. And so also time can bend and, uh, and turn back onto itself. So, uh, so one of the most popular uh, uh, and prominent ideas is that of a wormhole where you uh, jump on one side of a wormhole and come out on the other side uh, at an earlier time. To, to make an analogy, you can think of a wormhole as a kind of corridor. It has two doors. And if you enter one door and walk out the other, you go back a certain amount of time. If you walk the other direction, you go forward a certain amount of time.
3: But how
0: would we, how would we create the door that would take us to that other time?
4: Right, that's the the tricky bit that uh, uh, we don't really know if it's possible. So um, there are uh, um, solutions to the Einstein equation, which means there are uh, some some scenarios of space-time that seem to to be possible. Uh, It just, uh, unfortunately, they would require some type of matter that we don't really have. So something with uh, uh, very strange properties, something which is called uh, uh, negative uh, energy density to create such wormholes. And, uh, yes, it's unfortunate that uh, um, the, the type of matter that we have around uh, uh, does not allow to do that. But um, um, we don't know, in fact, uh, if uh, if that's a property of all type of matters. There are uh, uh, some aspects, again, involving quantum physics and uh, the interaction of quantum physics and general relativity that we don't fully understand. And uh, we don't understand if, uh, if it is possible, maybe in principle, to create a type of matter that will create these wormholes. Uh, so essentially what we'll, we'll have to do is to, to bend the space-time uh, so strongly to have some uh, very strong and very specific type of matter that uh, bends space-time and in a way it punches a hole through it. And so once you punch the hole, you create this corridor, I was saying, uh, with uh, two doors. And then you have, uh, uh, in a way you have to take one door uh, and take it around for a ride uh, uh, in a specific way that uh, relativity predicts will uh, uh, change the time uh, of that door relative to the other one. So that part uh, is uh, is known how to do it in principle. Uh, the part that is not clear is how to create the corridor in the first way.
0: Okay, and Dr. Costa, now if even if we could do this, even if we found the matter and we could create the wormhole and everything else, do we believe or is there any theory that says we could actually choose what time we would go back to or would it be a completely random moment that you would arrive at?
4: Uh, no, we will not know exactly uh, when we will go back because uh, once we have set up the wormhole, so to speak, the corridor, we have set, set up uh, a fixed uh, um, time gap between the two doors. So we know exactly that uh, if you go from one door to the to the other, we know exactly how much back we go in time. And then you can also go out of the corridor, walk around back to the door, and walk another uh, uh, the, uh, another time interval. So in principle, one can go back uh, arbitrary amount of time with the caveat that you can only go as far back as to the time where the corridor was uh, um, was first created, which is uh, um, a possible explanation why we haven't seen any time traveling from, for the future, <clears throat> because uh, um, it's possible that uh, if a time machine can be created, it only allows you to go back at the earliest when it was created. So if since uh, a time machine has not been created yet, um, time travelers are not able to come here yet. Well,
0: I was gonna ask that because th- people are always studying and expanding our knowledge and everything else. Is it not theoretically possible then that someone who has been from the future is back here time traveling because they've developed how to do what you've started to figure out?
4: Yeah, exactly. so that's uh, uh, as far as uh, uh, as we know, that will not be possible or it's uh, uh, it's m- ve- much more unlikely. Um, well, first of all, we don't know if time travel is possible at all, but if it were, um, most likely would be of the type I was describing that you cannot go back an arbitrary amount of time. You can only go back, in a way, you have to think of that someone has to open that door in the past, in the first place. And because no one here knows how to do that, we cannot yet uh, get visitors from the future.
0: One thing that is fascinating about what you've studied and, and how you describe this is the paradox. And, and just so um, many people, when they think of time travel, and if we could ever figure out, and if it really was possible to do this, the use of this would be, well, let let me go back then to the 1930s, and uh, I will assassinate Adolf Hitler before he gets power, and therefore we don't have the Second World War, or we don't have millions of lives lost, and we don't have the Holocaust but there's a problem with the theory that says you can go back and change history before it starts.
4: Well, yeah, essentially the, uh, the um, paradox is that uh, uh, events only happen once, so to speak. So we know that uh, Hitler was there and the Holocaust happened. And so we already know that uh, uh, nobody went back in time to kill Hitler, because if they did, uh, uh, Hitler will not be there in the first place. Uh, so this is exemplified typically in the grandfather paradox is an extreme example where uh, uh, you go back in time and you kill your uh, young grandfather before uh, uh, he could meet your grandmother. And uh, he could meet your grandmother. And in this way, you will not be born. And if you are not born, you cannot go back in time and kill your grandfather. So the problem (laughs) there is really of logical consistency because uh, either you are born or you are not born. Uh, Both things cannot be true at the same time. Um, and so the the research we have been doing is exactly try to see uh, to what extent these paradoxes can be fixed uh, or can be avoided in a way. So how much is it possible to go back in time uh, and perform actions and yet not create any inconsistency?
0: Right. And let me give one other example, which has come up a lot lately. And I know that it's been talked about even with your studying here. And that is, well, I don't even have to go back to 1930. I just want to go back to last september or october and stop the first case of covid from starting and therefore we won't have the covid outbreak but the problem is that as you say it's already happened if it hadn't happened if i could go back and if i understand this right if i could go back and prevent covid from happening then there would be no covid which would then remove my reason for wanting to go back to prevent covid from happening it becomes this cycle
4: yeah exactly so these are the type of things that uh... Uh, we cannot really make sense of these type of uh, contradictions. It simply... <laughs> it's uh, right. It hurts your head. there or was not there. So uh, is there so, an answer? So the, you, yes. You, you
0: say you've been working on how to answer this paradox. So is there an answer for how we get around this?
4: Well, yeah, in a way, uh, there are a lot of uh, science fiction stories that uh, already give an answer, and the, the um, answer that is kind of compatible, at least to, with logic, is that, uh, um, is that of self-consistent time travel. So that's the story where uh, um, the traveler goes back in time and tries to prevent uh, uh, certain events from happening, but then uh, their actions are uh, the very trigger for those events. So in the COVID example, uh, we imagine uh, we go back in time, we try to prevent the, the virus, but then we get infected in doing so, and we become a patient zero and start the pandemic. Uh, and uh, so what we have been studying is that uh, this is a relatively generic situation. So it looks like that uh, uh, you can have very, uh, a very diverse range of uh, scenarios where uh, uh, time travel goes back in time and performs any action they like, but then events uh, always manage to adjust themselves to be exactly as they should be.
0: Do you... Um I mean, you're studying this, you understand this, and certainly, you know, us having a conversation on the radio, it's very difficult, but, uh, you you know, when you talk to other people and you do your study on this, and it's very serious, do you believe that in time this is a realistic possibility that this could be figured out to the point where someone might do it?
4: Well, I must say it's very hard to say. Uh, It's probably not, uh, but it's really uh, fascinating to think that it might be. And uh, it's fascinating that... uh, for the physics, for as much as we know in physics now, it's not excluded. And so exactly the the research in this area is to try to understand uh, um, if physics somehow excludes it or if it al- allows it. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I will say the jury's out there and uh, will be really fascinated to imagine that something like that uh, was possible. And, uh, of course... Uh, um, the the implication will be quite uh, um, quite incredible, but um, but certainly that's not something we can uh, we can say f- for sure now.
0: Well, no, and uh, you know your your science prizes may come many years later when they figure out how to do it and they say, but look, Dr. Costa was the one who figured it out. We should have given it to him. we got to travel back now, but we can't, and it gets very complicated. Listen, I really appreciate you taking some time to explain this today. It is is—it uh, is so interesting, It is, uh, and it's such a, a concept that we, we have seen presented so many times in so many ways. I thank you for trying to share some of this today. Thank you.
4: Yes, thank you for calling.
1: The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.